Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Grand Valley Church. And I want to repeat what Max said. We are so excited that you're here with us this morning as we continue this series called Dollars and Cents. And you might be wondering, why, why are we talking about money as a church? Why, why is this something that we feel is so important that we're giving this whole month to talking about money? And one of the main reasons about that is that if we look at our own lives, we think about or we talk about money every single day and Anyways, whether it's small purchases, whether it's large purchases, whether if you're maybe you're stressed about your bank account or feeling like, oh, what am I going to do about this expense that's coming up? Or maybe something, you know, in your home broke, you know, we're in that season where everyone's furnaces kick on and you're like, that doesn't sound the way it sounded last year. I think I better call someone. We're in that season as well, but we think about, we talk about money Anyway, so why wouldn't we talk about it together as a community of faith? Why wouldn't we take some time to look at scripture and say, what does Jesus actually have to teach us about money? And the second reason we're doing this is that everyone has financial goals, but not everyone knows how to reach them. Oftentimes we have goals, we have things we want to move towards, we have things we want to do but we don't always know how to get there. And so in this series today, we're actually going to dig into some of this practical how do we get there pieces of it. But one of our overarching goals for this series, and you've heard me say this before, and and I really want us to make sure we grab this together, is that our desires, we want people to be able to live with margin and to live on mission. And what we mean by that with margin is we want you to have breathing room. We want you to have space in your finances. Because when you live with margin, it turns a crisis into an inconvenience. Because you have space, you have breathing room, you have room for the unexpected. Because our lives never actually go always the way we expect them to. And secondly, living on mission means being able to use your money for the things that matter to you. So that you can have an impact that goes beyond yourself so that we can actually shape and influence our world. And so if you're just joining with us today, I'm going to give you a quick recap of where we've been on the last two weeks. We started off by asking this question, is money a constant worry? And then last week we talked about, is money an endless pursuit? And so we talked about, is money something we get stressed out about. And the message of scripture is constant in saying, do not worry, because worry is not productive. And so in that week, we talked about how do we shift our perspective to get away from worry. And then last week, we talked about, is it just an endless pursuit for more? And how do we overcome that desire for more that we all have by leaning into gratitude and by leaning into contentment. And so if those topics intrigue you and you're like, I think I want to hear that one, we podcast our messages. You can always listen to our messages online and catch up later. But for today, we are talking about this. Is money a management mystery? Is money a, just a big question mark? Because where did you learn about money? And some of us, maybe your parents taught you, maybe for some of you, your parents went to something like our financially fit kids and got some tools, got some resources, and were able to set you up well. But some of us, and I would almost hazard to say most of us, probably learned about money through trial and error, through learning what worked and what didn't work by making a series of rather expensive mistakes. But today we're going to focus on this. How could we actually manage our money? How do we get in control of our money instead of our money being what controls us? And it's going to start with this perspective question. How do you view your money? 
Is it something that you own or is it something that you manage? And as I was doing my research and thinking about this, I kind of thought, you know, I don't normally go to this resource, but what would the wealthiest person in the world have to say about the use of money? And so I did some research, and surprisingly, a name came up on my list as not quite at the top, but high enough that I thought this was remarkable. Did you know that Scrooge McDuck's net worth is 85 billion Canadian? Like, having his big giant vault of, like, the coins that he, like, dives into in the cartoons, like, that would really hurt. Like, diving into a giant vault of coins, that would be painful. Don't do that. But his net value was $85 billion, high enough to be remarkable, not actually highest. If we go actually to who is the top of the Forbes list this year, it's actually Jeff Bezos, the guy behind Amazon. Net worth in Canadian dollars, $172 billion. But he's actually nowhere near the top if we go whoever lived. In fact, if we go back to Old Testament times, there was a guy named King Solomon, and his net worth in today's dollars is $2,700 billion. That's $2.7 trillion. Now, our, na- our, our minds often struggle to understand numbers that large, so I needed something to compare that to. So if you took all the currency of our entire world and put it in Canadian dollars, the total amount of currency in our world is only $6.1 trillion. So if Solomon in his wealth, could build a time machine and jump into today, he would have 44% of the entire world's wealth. That's crazy. So when you see that, there's almost this question that comes to mind, well, why? Why was King Solomon so wealthy? How did he get there? And to answer that question, we've got to go back a few hundred years before Solomon. And the Israelites, they entered into the promised land around 1,500 years before Christ, 1,500 BC, give or take a century. And when the Israelites came into the land to possess it, they didn't have a king. In fact, their king, their governance, their system of structure was all based on their Torah law, the first five books of the Bible. That was their law, that was their guidance, and together they worked at following that together. But when there was a crisis, when a foreign nation came to want to attack the Israelites, God would appoint a judge. And a judge was someone who was a ruler who would band the people together to respond to the crisis or the threat that was at hand. And so maybe you've heard the names Gideon and Samson. Those were two of the more famous of the time period of the judges. But as the time period of the judges came to a close... The Israelites started saying to God and saying to the priesthood, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us that have a king. Because this is kind of weird that we don't have a central government, but other nations do. And so God kind of relented and said, okay, I'll give you a king. And in fact, the first king of Israel, his name was Saul, was chosen purely because he looked like someone who would be a king. He was tall and he was handsome. And God said, okay, you want a king? Here's your king. He looks like a king, not a very good king. And so Saul was the first king. But after Saul, God kind of said, okay, now I'll give you who should be a king. And he picks David this youngest son of a shepherd from the smallest tribe of Israel, this person who would be deemed insignificant to most, David gets chosen because of his heart. He gets chosen because of his love for God. And so David is really the pinnacle of the three kings that were the beginning of Israel. And then Solomon was one of David's sons. Now, he wasn't the oldest son. He wasn't the, the 
heir apparent. He wasn't who everyone thought would be the next king when David grew old. But when David grew old and he knew his life was coming to an end, he appointed Solomon to be king. Now, so Solomon becomes the king of Israel at only 20 years old. He's young, he's inexperienced, he's not even, he wasn't even expecting to ever be king because he was way down the list of who should be king before Solomon. But David, in his wisdom, appoints Solomon. And so Solomon becomes king. And you know what? At the beginning, he's kind of scared. He's worried. He doesn't know, how am I going to lead these people? And so Solomon, one night, has this experience where God appears to Solomon in a dream. And we're going to pick up the story at 1 Kings 3. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. What would you respond if God asked you that question? What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. And so Solomon replies, Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David. But I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. See, Solomon knows that he doesn't know. He knows that he does not have the leadership ability. He does not have what it takes to be king of a nation. And so this is the request he gives to God. He says, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? See, he doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for his enemies to be eliminated because at this point there were plots against his life. There were people that were going to try and assassinate him and take him out and put one of David's other sons in the throne because that would be advantageous to them. Like honestly, Game of Thrones has nothing on the Old Testament in terms of political intrigue and mystery and everything going on. And honestly, it's gory, it's bloody. They fought over things. I'm glad that's not how we do things now. So God replies to Solomon. And he says, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. See, God says, because of what you asked for, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you an understanding heart. I'm going to give you the knowledge between right and wrong. But then he goes beyond that. He says, I'm also going to give you what you didn't ask for. And this is God's typical way of operating, that he always wants to give more than what we ask for. And God says, I will give you riches and fame. And we sometimes look at that and we might say, well, okay, well, why? Why did God choose to heap riches and fame on top of wisdom? Well, first of all, God's trying to reinforce something. He puts riches and fame as secondary to wisdom. God puts wisdom above wealth. That is what he is rewarding in Solomon. He wants Solomon to have the wisdom, but he will make his, his kingship secure by giving him what's next. He will make him secure by giving him this riches and fame. So part of it is to secure Solomon as the king. But secondly, we also need to look at what, what Israel is at in that stage. Because up till this point, the temple of God was a tent. It was the tabernacle that had been built back when the Israelites were wandering in the desert more than six, seven hundred years ago. But God had told David, you don't get to build the temple. 
but your son Solomon will. And so the wealth and the riches and fame that God gave to Solomon was about the temple being built. It was about who God is being demonstrated through the Israelites to the world. This is what God's doing. He's setting up wisdom is greater than riches and fame, but riches and fame have their purpose and have their use to bring glory to God's name. So what does Solomon do with this? What does Solomon have to say from all his wisdom, from having you know, more wealth than anyone else in recorded history? What does Solomon have to say about money? What can we learn from him? So fortunately, Solomon wrote a couple books. He wrote the book of Proverbs, which is a collection of wisdom. He wrote Song of Songs, which is a love story and a love poem, which is an interesting read. If you've never read it, I'd recommend it sometime. And then there's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is thought to be the last book that Solomon wrote. He wrote it near the end of his life, looking back and reflecting. And even though he was the wisest and he knew what was right from wrong, he also did a lot of things he wasn't supposed to do. And so he is looking back on his life. He has some regrets. He has things that he looks at that he did well. He has things that he looks at he did poorly. And this is the wisdom that comes out of the wisest man who ever lives. He says this in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth will bring true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except to watch it slip through your fingers? It's said that during Solomon's era, silver was considered worthless because of how much gold they had. And he says, what good is the silver and gold? except to watch it slip through your fingers. And then he goes on and he concludes this thought by saying, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. See, this is what Solomon's getting at. No one really owns their money. We only manage it for the time we have it. Even the wealthiest man in the world understood that money just slid through his hands. It comes in as we earn it. It goes out as we spend it. And we don't actually ever own and hold on to it. We simply manage it for the time that it is in our possession until it goes out. Until we reach the end of our lives when we end our lives and we don't take anything with us. We leave it all behind. So who really does own it? And Solomon's father had something to say about who actually owns all this. And if we go to the book of Psalms, and the first portion of the book of Psalms were all written by King David, most of it before he became king, when he was on the run, when he was hiding, when God was protecting him. And uh, David says this to recognize who really owns it. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. David recognized this even before he was king, even before he had power. Everything ultimately is owned by God. And we are simply managers of it for the time that we have it. That's why in every morning uh, or every Sunday when we're here and gathered, we say we want to give back to God a portion of what he's given to us. Because that is a statement of recognizing who actually owns it. That is a statement of orienting ourselves to say God is the one who owns this. I am a manager of it. And there's a term that gets used in scripture sometimes, and it's kind of an old-fashioned term called steward. 
And a steward was someone who was employed and hired to manage someone else's affairs, to manage their homestead, to manage their farm, to manage their business, to manage their money, to manage the household. Whatever it was they were hired to manage, they would be a steward. And so a steward was someone who had responsibility. They had responsibility for someone else's things to make sure that their master's will was done in the management of what they had. And so we're going to jump ahead about a thousand years. We're going to jump from the time of kings from David, Saul, David, and Solomon. And after Solomon, one of his big failures was he never appointed a strong heir to his throne. And so after Solomon, the nation of Israel split in half. Into the north became Israel, the south became Judah. And the rest of the Old Testament follows what happens with them and how both of those nations ultimately fail. But then, God does something. God himself steps into the world in Jesus Christ. And Jesus enters the world and begins, and when he's about 30-ish years old, he begins this ministry of teaching and telling people about what does it really mean to have a relationship with God? What does God really want from us? How do we actually understand who God is? And one of the ways that Jesus taught was to tell parables, to tell these stories, to get the people listening to put themselves into the story and start saying, well, what does this teach us about who God is? And so late, late in Jesus' ministry, shortly before he's going to be arrested by the religious leaders and he's going to be crucified and he's going to rise from the dead. But before that, Jesus tells this parable. And he often started his parables this way. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by... And so this makes us right away think he's not just talking about a situation. He's talking about this is how God and us interrelate. This is how God's kingdom becomes real on earth. He says the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. These three servants would have been stewards. Some of the translations you might read from will say steward instead of servant. And so the master, he gives five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. So he takes his three servants, he gives five to one, two to one, and one to the last. And he says, here you go, I'm going to be gone. Doesn't say how long he's going to be gone for, but he says, manage this. And then he leaves on his trip. So the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. 100% return rate. That's pretty awesome. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. 100% return rate. Man, how do I get in on this? But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. So this is a common way that Jesus often taught. He would set up something once, repeat it a second time, and then the third one, something's different. So the first one, put it to work. Second one, put it to work. Third one, buried it in the ground. And already, Jesus' listeners would be, look at this, and they would say, something's going to happen to that third guy. He's not going to have a good outcome on this story. So sure enough, after a long period of time, the master returns, and he calls his three servants forward. And he says, all right, tell me what you've done. Show me what you've done with what I entrusted you with. 
And so the first guy comes and he says, here's the five bags you you gave me. Here's the five more bags of silver that I've gained. Look at this. Here's 10 bags of silver for me to give back to you. And it says this, the master was full of praise. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. That's what he says. Let's, let's hang on for a second on there. He says, you have been faithful in handling this small amount. So when we think about this, what amount of money are we dealing with? What are we dealing with? What is a bag of silver? And some of your translations may use the older Aramaic term of saying a talent. And a talent was equivalent to 20 years of a day laborer's wage. 20 years of salary for someone who was a day laborer. That doesn't really help us because how do we translate this? Well, when you break that down, what would that have been in silver? We're talking each of these bags was 75 pounds of silver. So if we translate that to today's money, each one of these bags was 25K Canadian. So when he says, here's five bags of silver, he's saying, here's 125 grand that I'm giving you to manage for me. Most of us would feel stressed out if someone said, here, I'm giving you 125 grand. You need to manage this. You need to do something with it. I'll be back at some point. I'm not telling you when, and I expect a return. Most of us would be stressed by that level of responsibility. But the master calls this a small amount. So what's the master still got in his pocket that he's not giving out? He says, then he says this, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. He says, because you've proven yourself, I'm going to give you more to manage. So then the second servant comes forward. He had his two bags of silver. And he says, here's the two, here's two more. And the master says the exact same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. So I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. Now, here's what's fascinating about this parable. Jesus doesn't give us any reason to say that the master is harsh. This is the third servant's perspective of the master. The third servant came into this feeling scared, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like, I don't know, master, he's going to be upset with me. So his response was, I'm going to bury it. I'm going to take no risk. I'm going to have no reward. I'm just going to give you back your bag of silver. Here's your 25K back. But the master replies, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. See, he's saying, if you think I'm harsh, well, that should have motivated you all the more. If you expect that I'm going to be angry with you, shouldn't that have made you want to do something more than just bury it in the ground? And so the master responds, he says, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But for those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, everyone's standing around Jesus hearing this parable, his disciples, the crowds, the religious leaders that were scoping him out and looking for ways to arrest him. They would have all gone, okay, so what does this mean? 
Where are we in this story? And when Jesus tells a parable, he challenges us to view ourselves as being in that parable. So if we're in that parable, which one of the servants would we be? Because this is what Jesus is trying to drive home. The master is our father in heaven. The master is God. He is the one who owns everything, who has everything, who provides everything. And he entrusts his followers. He entrusts us with what he gives us to manage. So when we look at this parable, we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do to manage what belongs to God, but what we have in our hands for a time? What do we want to do with that? Because that third servant, when he took the gold away, he took the bag of silver away from him, gave it to the one who had done well and said, here, have an extra 25K to work with. And that servant was tossed out. The third servant, the one who did nothing, got tossed out of the master's household and left by the wayside. So what are we going to do? Who do we want to be in that story? So how do we do this? How do we manage what we have better. Now, I'm not going to be able to give you a full budgeting course in the time we have, but I am going to give you some starting points because every one of our situations will be slightly unique and will be different, but there are general things that we can all do that will move us in the right direction towards a budget. So if this is something where you're like, yeah, I think I need to start doing something to manage my money better, that's our goal today, is to say, what is the first step to take? What is the direction to start us on? Because there are tons of resources out there. There's tons of things that can help you with this. And you need to tailor make something that works for you. But here's the first general step that anyone can do. And this isn't just a church thing. This isn't just a follower of Jesus thing. This is a human thing. Every person needs to be able to do this, to say, how do you manage what you have well? And so it starts with this. Number one, spy on your money. Do you know where your money's going? Do you really know? Do you know where every dollar that comes in, where it goes? Most of us probably don't. In fact, statistically, about 70% of Canadians don't have a budget, but a budget is only defined by if you actually track it. And actually, so it's actually a higher percentage than 70% of Canadians don't have a budget because if you don't track it, you don't have a budget. You have a wish list. So do you actually know where your money is going? Because here's the truth. All of us live on a percentage of our income. All of us live on a percentage. But those percentages might be different. So if you track your money, if you spy, you figure out where every dollar is going, here's what you might find out. If you're living on less than 80% of your income, that's what it means to live with margin. Now, I picked 80% just kind of as a ballpark round number. You may have a different number that is living with margin for you, but it should be significant. It should be a chunk of your income is your margin. If you're living on less than 80%, you have margin. If you're living on like 80 to 100% of your income, you have some margin. Now, if you're towing up to like 98, 99%, that's a really slim margin. And that margin isn't going to be able to turn crises into just an inconvenience. It'll still be a crisis. But if you're living over 100% of your income, if you track the amount of money coming in and the amount of money going out, and you realize the amount going out is more than 100%, you're living on credit. Now, there's good ways and there's poor ways to use credit, but using credit to prop up your monthly budget is a bad way to use credit. 
And so you actually, the first step on this is spy on your money. Figure out where every dollar is going. And the second thing, you might think, okay, now make a big plan. No, the second thing is address your spending. What are the easy and quick ways to reduce your spending right off the bat? What are the low-hanging fruit? What's the easy thing that's like, I really don't need that. Why am I spending X number of dollars on that? When you look at your budget, you will know when you look at it, which are the things that can be easily cut out. And if your partner is nudging you with an elbow right now, just don't. Have the conversation later. Have the conversation calmly. You know, talk through these things together. Plan like this doesn't really work unless both of you are on board. So you got to both be on board. So don't take an antagonistic approach to it. But what are the easy and quick ways right off the bat? If you're saying, I'm living over 100%, you got to make changes quick. But then you also need to take a moment and also look, what are your big expenses? What are the things that you can cut back on? What are the things that maybe is like a bill that you're like, well, that could be reduced. I don't actually need all of that. And you'll know what those things are. You can dig into it. You can look at it. As you spy on your money, as you see where it goes, you can address it. And then the third thing is to start building a plan. Plan for your future. A budget is simply a plan to manage your money so that you can reach your goals. And I hope one of those goals is living with margin because that frees you in so many ways. It's what takes us out of being a slave to money. It's what takes us out of being controlled by money and towards being able to manage well what we have to be the first or the second servant from the parable, not the third. So as you do this, it's not just a monthly, this is our monthly bills, this is mortgage, this is rent, this is auto insurance, this is groceries, this is, you know, cell phone bill, whatever those things are, you got to go beyond that. You got to go beyond just what's the month to month expenses. And you need to write out some short and some long-term goals and decide each month or each paycheck, how much you will set aside towards that because you're spending your money in the future that way. You know what's better than taking a great vacation? Taking a great vacation and paying cash. What's better than buying a car? Buy a car with cash. And then when they take you into the financer's office and they're like, here's the finance rate. This is the best rate you can ever get. You get to say, no, no, I have a better rate. My rate is zero. Here's cash. Well, probably a check. I mean, we're pretty much a cashless society. But you know what? It's, it's fun to do that. I've done that once. Once when I bought a, a used vehicle and the finance guy's like, this is the best possible rate I can. And I said, oh, I got a better rate. What's that? Zero. He's like, what do you mean? I have cash for this. And then he's like, do you really? And I'm like, well, I, I, I'm borrowing part of it, but my bank interest rate is so much lower. But immediately the guy's just like, well, get out of here. You're wasting my time. And I'm like, yep, good, awesome. Bought my car. The car turned out to be a lemon. Bad decision. We live and learn. (laughs) But make a plan that includes your short and your long-term goals. Oftentimes we make a budget, but we forget to include the things that we want to. One of the things that should be a short-term goal right off the bat is what's called an emergency fund. An emergency fund is a chunk of income that you decide how much that should be, whether that's like two months of salary, you know, four months, six months of salary that you just set aside that is there for the furnace breakdown, that's there for the unexpected car breakdown, that's there for the unexpected bill, that's there for those things that don't fit your budget. You get to go, okay, I got the emergency fund. I will put that towards that bill and now I'll rebuild that emergency fund. That's what prevents you from having to reach for credit when a crisis happens. Now, there's many ways to do this. 
There's many ways to track your spending and manage your budget. There's apps. You can do it old school, paper and pencil. You can do an Excel spreadsheet or Google Docs. You can even do one of the ways that, that works well is the cash in envelopes, where you actually take out your in your salary in cash and you have like, okay, here's my envelope that is marked groceries that has cash and that's all I get to spend. And if I need to go over that, I have to take cash out of a different envelope or maybe use gift cards if you don't like having cash. I am poor when I have cash in my wallet. I'm better with cards. If there's cash in my wallet, I just spend it. So we just rein in how much cash I can have in my wallet. That's just those ways of learning how to manage yourself. So here's the three steps. And again, this is just a start of this. Spy on your money. Figure out where it's going. Address your spending. What are the low-hanging, easy-to-change things that give you a quick, fast win and start moving you towards um, having a margin? And third, plan for your future. Start making a plan of what you, where you want to be financially, where you want to go, how you want to use your finances to make a difference. See, we all live on a percentage of our income. What percentage are you living on? Spy on your money to find out. It's the only way to figure it out. So when it comes to money, this is the, the boiled down, the wisdom of Scripture, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom that Jesus teaches. And Jesus teaches a lot on money. There are a lot of passages we could have gone to today. When it comes to money, it's better to be an active manager than a passive owner. Because if we view money as just something we hold on to and own, we tend to be passive. We tend to hoard it. We tend to just want it to be there. So it's better to be an active manager than a passive owner. Now, we timed this out, that this Wednesday is Raising Financially Fit Kids. Because all of us have the challenge of saying, how did we learn and how will we pass this information on to the next generation? You might be thinking, okay, you know, my kids are old enough like, my kids aren't, are past that age. Well, what about your grandkids? How can you as grandparents influence that? Or if you're thinking, you know, I don't have kids yet. Kids aren't on the radar even for me in the near future. This is still good advice because let's be really honest with ourselves. Sometimes our financial literacy is at the rate of a child. I know mine was. If you read your In the Loop email that came out this morning, you will know the story of how good I was how bad I was with money when I was 18. I needed something like this when I was 18. So that's coming up on Wednesday. You can get your ticket online, but I want to give you a preview. We've got one more week left on this series, but I want to give you a preview of what's coming up next. So starting November 3rd, we're launching into a brand new sermon series here called Didn't See It Coming. And we're going to be talking about how do we overcome the five greatest challenges that no one expects and everyone experiences. These are five things that every person faces and has to deal with, and these are character pieces we dig into. And so what we're going to do through the month of November is we're going to dig into these topics. We're going to talk about cynicism. We're going to talk about disconnection. We're going to talk about pride, emptiness, and burnout. That these are things that we all would say, that's not going to be my problem. But if you look at your life, and we're going to talk about these, you'll actually realize, no, these are the things that everyone faces. And so we're going to start digging into that on November 3rd. So this is a series where this is an, uh, will be a great series if you want to think about inviting someone to come and check out what church is, because we're going to be talking about how does the wisdom of Jesus, how does scripture tackle each of these things that everyone faces? These are human issues, not just followers of Jesus, things that happen. 
This is for all of us. So let me take a moment, let me pray, and we'll wrap the service. God, thank you so much that you ultimately own everything. And somehow in your wisdom, you think it is wise to make us the managers of what belongs to you. God, we often talk about having faith in you, but your faith in us must be great for you to entrust your kingdom, to entrust what belongs to you, to us to manage. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, in this process. I pray you would help us as we spy on our money to see where things are. I pray you would give us insights to know what we need to change, what we need to do differently, what we need to make, uh, where we need to make changes that help us to be managers so that we are not owned or controlled by money, but instead we get to manage it well for a purpose, that we get to manage it in ways that have impact. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide our decision-making, that you would be with each one of us as we dig through these um, challenging conversations, if they're with a partner or a spouse. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be able to make decisions that help us be the good and faithful servants that you call us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. Folks, see you next week, or hopefully see you on Wednesday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.